0: If you guys have your Bibles, please turn out to Malachi 2. Malachi 2. And head for around verse, uh, verse 12 or 13. 13, yeah. Head for verse 13. Malachi 2. Verse 13, if you guys are at home and you didn't hear me before, I uh, just want to say to the people at home, we are going to end this morning's message with communion. So if you haven't had a chance to grab... Um, uh the bread and the juice if you're using them at home please take a moment to do that right now um hey i, I don't know uh we had a really good turnout uh, relative to our size for uh Jackie Hill Perry and uh Preston Sprinkle on is that me yeah we had a really good turnout uh on on um thursday night And I say that because it's just not because I want to be hyper numbers focused but because it was just encouraging to see people who are interested in thinking about this issue of human sexuality. Uh, And it's just just so crucial and I just want to keep on saying that to you guys and flashing a big billboard sign to you that these issues of human sexuality, same-sex attraction, transgender, the, the church's place in these the word of God in these things the accusations of hate speech the questions about what the Bible says These things are are not I don't believe they're gonna go away for quite a while for the church and for our witness in the world and so it really behooves us to, to stock up and to um, To to really gear up to be able to explain to ourselves and explain to our neighbors why um, God's word says what it says and to do so with courage and to do so with love. Um, and so I, last Thursday was just, uh, Thursday night was such a gift. I mean, my daughter, she's 12 and she came and she couldn't stop beaming, you know, because she's in the environment much more than I am in the public school system. And it brought so much of a clarity to her and so much of a sense of, solidarity with jackie hill perry uh and and the the um the reality of what god is able to do and you know as marie thinks about her friends and what they're struggling with what they're tempted by and um and her own fear of man you know she saw this woman who was boldly had her life transformed uh, just what was so beautiful about the story was how the transformation took place just in the simple faithfulness particularly of her aunt going to church teaching sunday school and and it, you know not even addressing the topic but the holy spirit just using the simple faithfulness of a local church being a local church the simple faithfulness of a sunday school teacher teaching sunday school the simple faithfulness of an aunt who prayed who lived a godly life who loved her husband and loved her kids and loved jesus and watching that the lord worked and worked a miracle so it was super hope giving for me too um Well, we continue with this theme of human sexuality, particularly focused right now in Malachi 2 on marriage. Um, And uh, today's message is called The Lord, a witness for wives. The Lord, a witness for wives. Uh, Last week, I sought to persuade you that human sexuality is so much bigger than this world says it is, that it is so much more purposeful and glorious and beautiful than we understand I sought to persuade you that we don't think too much about sex as it might be cliche to kind of say that we're sex obsessed but the truth is in our sex obsessions we actually think too little of sex and sexuality that we so often make it a prized commodity of pleasure merely traded between humans when God means it to be a living poem about his love for us and our love for him as it should be and especially expressed in the covenant of marriage. And I took you guys back to the, one of the cornerstone passages of this picture of, of human sexuality in marriage as a poem of God's love for us, when Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are parts of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father. And you hear the echo of the gospel in just that opening volley. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife And the two will become one flesh. And then Paul makes clear what he's talking about. This poem, he says, This mystery, this thing that's now revealed, is profound. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Is he talking about marriage? Yes, but marriage is talking about Christ and the church. Human marriages are a pale reflection a metaphor, a poem about the marriage, the real marriage, Christ and you, his bride. Paul is telling us that his husbands give themselves to loving and nourishing and cherishing their wives with their very lives laid down. They're revealing who God is to their wives they're revealing who God is to themselves and to all who see their marriage. In marriage, men are meant to be pictures of God's faithfulness, of his steadfast love, of his covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, sacrificial love. That is the nature of husband's leadership in a home. It's that nature, that sacrificial, loving nature that gives their leadership legitimacy, that circumscribes it, that limits it, that defines it. And this morning we're going consider, to consider the consequences of what happens, particularly when men, as Malachi's addressing men, when men don't embrace that picture of faithfulness, but embrace its opposite. They embrace exploitation, and selfishness. So a brief word of review before we get there. Last week, we saw the men of Judah spurning their sister, Yahweh worshipers, spurning their sister Israelites, and taking this covenant of marriage that was meant to be shared with their sisters, with these women. And they were taking that covenant of marriage, a symbol of God's faithfulness to his people, and they were were sharing it with women who worship demon gods. And rejecting their sister israelites i don't mean their literal family sisters i mean their their brothers and sisters among god's people instead of taking sisters in christ or sisters in god as their wives they were taking women who worshipped demon gods and this was god says an abomination to him it was a profaning of his sanctuary Because his sanctuary is a symbol of that unity that marriage is a symbol of. The sanctuary is the place where God most sought to express his own marriage covenant with Israel. And so he says, what you're doing in this marrying women who worship demon gods is you're profaning my very temple where I come together with my people. Now today we're gonna reflect on a similar problem. The men who were married to Yahweh's daughters who were married to them, who did take them as their wives, they were tossing them aside. And God's response is one of grief and one of anger. And it's a response with a profound expression toward these men. So starting in Malachi 2, I'm just going to read three verses. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth To whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. be faithless let's pray Lord you command us to not be faithless because you are not faithless therefore we have such great hope this morning you husband redeemer to whom all husbands should look we have great hope we ask you, and we, Lord, trust you to be faithful to your bride and your people today through the preaching of your word. Watch over it and bless it, please, to perform your desires. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now this passage is astounding in many ways, and we're not going to get through it all today. There's issues of, of upbringing children and more precise issues of divorce that we will work on in coming days, but I want to consider specifically today three things. I want to talk about three things. First, the dynamic that's going on between God and these men. I want to talk about why that dynamic was taking place, and then I want to talk about how we can learn or benefit from that experience that they were having. So the dynamic between God and these people, why that dynamic was taking place, and then what we can take away from it. Why or how we can benefit from it. So first, let's let's look at this dynamic, like what's going on in this passage. Verse 13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. God is speaking to the men of Judah. He says, you cover my altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because I no longer regard your offering or accept from, with it with favor from your hand. One of the astounding implications of this passage is that these men who were apparently trying to fulfill their religious obligations of worship, of sacrifice, of offerings at the temple, who were trying to live out the, the, uh, the responsibilities of living out their feast days and their Sabbath requirements, who were bringing tithes and offerings. As they were trying to live out their faith towards God under the old covenant, somehow what they experienced in their heart was deep emotional pain. Now Malachi doesn't tell us exactly what that looked like, but it's clear from these passages that the men know the painful loss of communion with God. They know the loss of peace with God. They experienced it in their hearts, this sense of God withdrawing withdrawing his benevolent presence, his nourishing, cherishing presence. And notice God says, through Malachi, that he no longer accepts their worship. So the implication may be that in the past seasons of their lives, certainly it means in past generations, but in the past seasons of their lives, perhaps they had known sweet communion and fellowship with Yahweh. And I think that's very likely, because I think their emotional experience wouldn't be so raw if they hadn't fallen from somewhere that was much more life-giving and joyful. And so we, we recognize from this passage that experiencing beautiful, relational peace and love and joy with God is not something only for New Testament believers. David is the one who tells us, this is David's word under the Old Covenant. This is what was there for people, men and women in the Old Covenant, to feel this way. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there's no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify me, will glorify you. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That was the experience available to the Old Testament saint, to these men of Judah. And apparently, these men knew that experience. But now they don't. Now God no longer regards their attempts at a spiritual relationship with them. He no longer listens. He no longer gives them a sense of his acceptance or his favor. He no longer gives them a sense of his special concern, of his condescending, and I mean that in a good way, his, his coming down to them, this sense of undeserved affection that gives us the most joy we can have in this world. It was no longer perceived by them at all. A brick wall, a door shut. And their response is weeping a weeping so great that God says it covers my altar with tears I'm just going to take this off so it covers God's altar with tears which which may at least be a symbolic way of saying There's a great deal of it. There's a lot of crying going on. There's a lot of moaning and groaning. And he uses that word weeping and groaning. Jesus said in the Gospels that that an experience of the soul in hell is this constant weeping and gnashing of teeth. The experience of the hunger that comes from a diet of deep awareness of shame, And condemnation no more ability to escape into the pleasures of this world to mask that but this gnawing sense of the loss of God and all of his goodness because of the sin in their heart these weepings and groanings going on here in Judah are perhaps a lesser but still painful experience of that emotional pain and that sense of aloneness That awaits man without Christ for eternity. Now, there are times where you and I will almost surely go through, and I believe if you're committed to Jesus, you will go through, seasons of what's been famously called the dark night of the soul. Many times our hearts sense isolation from God. Feel the brick wall, the shut door. And many times we don't know why. Many times, it could have to do with battles with biochemistry, battles in spiritual heavenly places, and we just don't know what's going on. Oftentimes, God may be doing a secret and purifying work that he can only do through our suffering. Faith he can only build when we can't see it all. So we need to be really careful to assume that our sadness is an effect of our sins. We need to be even more careful about assuming it in others. But clearly, as Malachi tells us, there are times that there are reasons due to our own hearts for why we don't sense God as we used to. That there are reasons that are informed and a function of our unfaithfulness that we have to deal with the pain of isolation. And so it is good to carefully reflect and ask in those seasons when we sense a brick wall, a shut door. It's wise to ask, Lord, am am I missing something that should be right in front of me? Is there some basic disobedience that covers my life? Am I not treating you justly and treating my family justly? My co-workers, my neighbors. This is what these men apparently were finally doing. And God answers through his prophet. Verse two or or verse fourteen. So now we're moving into why. What's the answer? Why this dynamic was going on here? So verse fourteen We're under the heading of why this dynamic took place. We talked about the dynamic itself. Now we're going to look at why, starting in verse 14. But you say, why does he not? In other words, why does he not accept our worship? Why don't we sense his relational care? And here's the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? These men were abandoning their wives. Probably in this case, they were seeking women they thought were more beautiful than the daughters of Yahweh they had married. Women who were younger. I say this because the Lord makes it a point to say the wives of your youth are being abandoned. The wives of your youth, which seems to indicate that these men were no longer in their youth and their wives were probably likewise no longer in their youth since it was very likely that wives married in this culture were younger than the husbands. So he's calling to their minds, their long faithful companions, your wife. By covenant, look back at this covenant. God says, I was a witness between you and her. Your wife, by covenant, I'm a witness. I still remember my wedding day. I mean, give me a medal, right? (laughs) I should. I say that like, I deserve props. But I do, I remember my wedding day. My mom and dad so beautiful to think about my mom and dad there that day they were so happy my closest family my dearest friends who were all gathered around it was the most beautiful party i've ever been to in my life and standing maybe a step above me was my dear friend and pastor tim fisher he was a paul to my timothy he had raised me in the faith in a sense in ministry and stuck with me through all kinds of ups and downs in my life that were just incredible faithful friend And right across from me, holding my hand, was my beautiful Jen, beautiful in white that day. And then, standing closest of all, closer than I could really tell, was God. Closest of all, up there at the altar, was Jesus Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit. He was actually the closest one to me, and he was there as a witness. He was taking it all in. and he was more sobered and more hopeful and more joyful and more focused and more prepared and more willing and more committed and more serious about my marriage than by far than anyone that day. That day didn't mean anywhere near as much to anyone as it meant to him. Not to me or to Jen. That was his day most of all. It meant the most to him. And he was there ready to pour out his spirit on our union. And when Pastor Tim said to me, Albert, I am now going to ask you to make a vow in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God listened more closely than anyone. When Tim said, will you have Jennifer to be your wife to live together in holy marriage? Will you love her and comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking, forsaking all others? Be faithful to her. As long as you both shall live. When Tim asked that question, Jesus leaned in. And the eyes of his heart looked at the eyes of my heart so he, he wouldn't miss a beat. And when I answered in his name and vowed, I will, I will, he received the words into his heart, More deeply than my wife did. Because I had made that vow in his name. I hadn't just made it to Jen, I had made it to him. He was a witness. He was a witness. He was a witness of the day that by vow my wife became my lifelong companion and my wife by covenant. He was a witness. And when I vowed before him, knowingly and willingly, in his presence, and on purpose, when I vowed in purpose, in his presence, intentionally in his presence, when I used his name to affirm, when I, in a sense, leveraged his majesty to make this commitment to my wife, when I said, I, Albert, In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, take you, Jennifer, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish according to God's holy ordinance, forsaking all others, to be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. When I did that, God was a witness. And my words meant more to him than they meant to anyone in that room, including my wife. He was a witness because I used his name. And to this day, when I violate those vows with harshness or laziness or talking over her or dismissing her or despising her, Or, if I allow my heart and my sexuality and my sexual desire to covet another woman, whether it be in person or on a screen, he is a witness. For I used his name and I vowed in his name not to do such a thing to my wife and to his name. And when I do that, he brings the witness of that day into the present and it grieves his faithful heart and it arouses his displeasure and his fatherly anger and he acts and his compassion moves towards my companion and my wife by covenant, the wife of my youth, that I vowed to love in his name. And his jealousy for his glory and his name is aroused because I use the holy name of Yahweh. And he acts in whatever deep way he deems wise to bring my attention to my unfaithful heart or if I will not listen, to bring discipline to my life so that I will listen. He acts because he's a witness. He was there that day in 2007. And he put more of his heart and soul into my marriage than I ever have. And he will not let my wife go unprotected, even if I will, because she's his daughter. So these men of Judah were experiencing the effects of his compassion for their wives and his discipline towards them. And their harsh and their cruel treatment of their wives, their flying to other women in their hearts, was a deep cruelty to their wives and a gross affront to his honor. Brothers and sisters, people go to hell because of pornography. People go to hell because of adultery. People go to hell because though they may not remember their vows, and many of us don't remember our vows, He remembers their vows. He remembers every word vowed in His name. We do not understand God. We are so unlike him. We take our words, I take my words so much lightly. This past week was an adventure for my wife and I in the world of used cars. As we scrambled all week to find a replacement family van. (laughs) I tried to repair my door last Saturday. Ask me if there are pictures if you want. In a few minutes, my my van door, the sliding door, was on the lawn, like four feet away from the van. That was the fruit of my repair attempts. It didn't work. So I broke my van, and our van is very old, 230-something miles on it, and just oil problems, potential engine problems. So we're just like, okay, we love you, van, but you're going to van heaven now. So early in the week... And we have, you know, four kids and soccer and these things and cooking class and all this stuff every day, just like you guys. And early in the week, I thought we had found a great deal, a great deal, scoured all these pages. And I told the dealer, I will come as soon as they were ready to buy that car. Here's your price. Here's my commitment. Here's a deposit, $500. And we both agreed. We had a covenant. (laughs) We had an agreement. And then later, as me and Jen studied more and thought through it more, we found what we thought was a better fit. So we thought, okay, we're gonna actually not go with that car, we're gonna go for a different car. And I went up to get ready to take a shower and I'm in the shower and I just sensed the Lord catching me. I just preached on his faithfulness last Sunday. If you didn't hear that message last Sunday, please go back and listen to that message. But I sensed him saying to me, Albert, you gave your word. Didn't you just say, I'm going to buy that car tomorrow, as soon as it's ready. And didn't he just say, we're going to sell you this car. Here's our price. We agree. I agree. You agree. We agree. Didn't you just give him your word? And I thought, well, it's a used car. It's a used car salesman. God's like, I'm talking to you, son. You gave your word. Remember who I am and whose presence you make any promise. I'm a faithful God, and since you belong to me, son, you're to be faithful to your word and to your commitment. Show up. Do what you said. And I remembered in the shower, I remembered his words, Jesus' words, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the evil one. (laughs) And so with my tail between my legs, I went to my wife who'd worked hard on revising our estimate of what we should do. And I said, honey, I think unless this car, our first choice, which is not our choice anymore, but our choice before when I said I would, unless that car is not as advertised, I think we need to stick to our commitment. I mean, if they break the commitment, then we can step out and say, you you broke the commitment here. But if they don't, we got to stick to our word. And as the week went on, (laughs) <laughs> so we called him. I said, dude, we're, we're here. I even t- told him the verse. You know, I said, I'm a believer. And the Lord said, let your les- yes be yes. So we're, 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 we're serious about this, you know? He's like, yeah, we'll get it ready. As the week went on, this dealer happened to discover more things wrong with the car. And, and then he told me they would fix it. Battery, door issue, a hinge broken, days of this. Finally, at the last minute, after Jen and I had taken a whole day off, and gotten babysitting last minute from Kate and Michael Cotton to watch our crazies, and we had driven half the two hours to get to this shop in Fredericksburg, Virginia, because it was better than any deal we could find in a 100-mile radius, and after we we waited longer, because he said, oh, it's not quite ready yet, but it'll be ready later, so can you just wait? So we got dinner, we're stoked, he calls me and says, you know, this repa- these repairs, they're becoming so heavy that we, we, uh, we, might, we need to change our price on this car. This is a car he had misadvertised from the beginning and now he's asking us to pay for that and he's reneging on the agreement he made. And I thought to myself, but what about your word? What about our word? What about our promises? What about faithfulness? So, you know, I had just been ready to do that a week earlier in the shower, but I thought to myself, God has awakened me through this process (laughs) to the filthiness of our lips, to the filthiness of our broken promises, and, and to the filth that is before him, the affront that our casual, empty commitments are to God. He hates it. It felt like I, I felt it in a way I, I couldn't imagine I would have I felt it before with a used car salesman. But I'd made this commitment, and now it felt so demeaning. The way he was treating me and my family, our hopes and excitements. Car's a big deal. We're going to have that car hopefully for a decade. It's going to be part of our lives. It felt so demeaning. I felt used. I felt my wife was used. I felt violated. It was a car. It was a used car. It was just a car. Can you imagine, men, how these women felt when their husbands handed them divorce papers papers because they found someone younger? When their husbands gave them a certificate that said our deal is over because she's hotter. She's more interesting. It turns out she's my soulmate. I didn't know there was such a thing as a soulmate, but I found her. Bye. I, but you made this promise. I know, but I'm sorry. Intentional decoupling, or whatever it's called. Can you imagine how she felt? Now, multiply that by a lot. To imagine how God felt. The one responsible for all purity, all justice, all righteousness, all faithfulness in the universe. The one whose name these men took upon their lips to use his name for this sacred holy covenant whose name they were now profaning. So let's look at 15 and 16. God is saying to apparently the remaining husbands left who haven't divorced their wives yet, who haven't bailed or been unfaithful yet, he says to them, so guard yourselves in your spirit, apparently the ones left. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen, covers his garment with violence God calls what these men are doing covering their garments with violence he says the way you're treating your wife the way you're treating this woman it's as if your whole outfit is just violence it's as if violence is your clothing it's a kind of violence that's your clothing because they've, it's become comfortable to them. It's second nature to them. It's, it's what they wear when they get out of the shower. Violence towards their wife. It's what they wear when they put, get up in the morning to make their coffee. They put violence towards their wife on through their breaking of this covenant. It's what they wear to the gym and to the office because of the way they're treating their wives. God says, y-. violence is your everyday clothing. A spiritual, emotional violence. It's your. It's what you wear. It's so close to you. It's so normal to you. You don't even notice it, maybe. So, how can we benefit from their experience? As I said before, there's more here that we'll venture into as we continue this particular section of Malachi. Huge themes. This touches on parenting. It touches on what does it mean that God made them one in his spirit. So, but some things are obvious we can just take away from today. An obvious takeaway is that divorce is never, ever, ever permitted because you find someone you like better, because you've fallen out of love, because you've just grown apart, because you just don't think you're a good fit. Divorce is allowable never commanded, but may be allowable in limited categories of sexual immorality, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 19, and abandonment, as Paul explained at the end of 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to talk more about that going forward in the coming weeks. But listen, there is so much more to faithfulness, to our covenant, than not getting divorced. God's concern for faithfulness to the wife of our youth, to our companion, is a lot deeper than, I didn't go to a lawyer. Give me a medal. It must mean a lot more than, I didn't divorce, I'm good. In 1 Peter 3, we see this same heart of god and his jealousy and for his honor in marriage and his jealousy and his compassion for his daughters in marriage in first peter in the third chapter after exhorting wives to follow their husband's leadership in the home which he does he pulls the husbands aside and he says this listen husbands You live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, showing honor to that woman who is a weaker vessel. They are heirs with you. They are co-heirs of the grace of life. And do this so that your prayers may not be hindered are men to be leaders in the home yes why because they're worth more because they're better no the woman is a co-heir she is an equal that's what that means co-heir it means she is an equal that's why paul says in galatians there is no longer slave or free jew or gentile male or female but all are one in christ jesus the gospel doesn't make it so that we don't have ethnicities. It doesn't make it so that we don't have employers and employees. They don't, we don't have fathers and sons. The gospel doesn't obviate ethnicities, but everyone who belongs to Jesus is an equal worth before him. So a man plays a different role. In the poem of the gospel that marriage is, a man plays the role of Christ. Good luck but God gives you his spirit so that you can. And the woman plays the role of the church. Good luck. Some would say maybe an easier job. I don't know. When you think about the church compared to Jesus, I'm not saying that, by the way. I'm trying to be a little bit humorous, but that's probably dangerous right now. But the reality is that the spirit makes these roles possible for us. But these are the roles he's given us in the play that marriage is, in the poem that marriage is. And the woman, he says, is a weaker vessel. She has a special vulnerability and fragility because of her physical form. That literally words weaker vessel means a feminine vessel. It actually has, actually has uh, gender sexuality connotations in it, which we hopefully will talk about later. She's a weaker vessel. She's not as strong physically. It means at least that. She's also in a a weaker position because she doesn't have the headship role. So she's more vulnerable to exploitation. And apart from whatever differences there might be hormonally or in the way God designed our brains, which there's a lot of research on, she always knows if she's a believer and she's trying to follow Jesus, I've gotta follow this imperfect guy, which has to add a layer of stress that he doesn't have all the time probably. And so Peter says, in effect, men, don't use your strength to serve yourself. Don't you dare. That's not your job. That's not what Jesus does. I don't legitimize that kind of leadership. I don't bless it. The only leadership I legitimize and bless is when you pretend to be Jesus in this poem. And you love her. And you care for her. And you protect her. And you don't exploit her for your selfish pleasure. So understand her. She's different. She's to be listened to. She's to be taken seriously. She's to be honored. Use your leadership to parade her worth and dignity before her and to others. And then, as if hearing God's ache in Malachi, Peter says, so that your prayers won't be hindered. God has your wife's back. And then a few moments, in case there's any doubt, he quotes David. After he says so that your prayers may be hindered, you might be thinking, oh, is he going to be distracted because his marriage is hard? Because you know, he's not a good husband, so it's hard for him to pray because he's always having conflicts with his wife? No, he explains in verse, he says, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open." To their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's what it means to have your prayers hindered. It means that the face of the Lord is now against you. It means that his ears are no longer open to your prayers. Some months ago, perhaps for the first time I can remember, I prayed to the Lord in a really tight situation and I felt as if he did not answer. And I counted on his promise. I said his promise in uh, Hebrews 4 to myself as I prayed. And I feel like I can, I can never, I just remember he's always faithful to me when I ask according to his promise. There's some faithfulness. I like But that night, it just, it felt like a brick wall. And I did not sense an answer when I called to him, when I thought he would have answered me. And to this day, I don't know why I went through that but you know what I didn't do? I never thought about how, how I was treating Jen that day. Like when, when my prayers didn't feel like they were getting through, when his ears didn't hear open, you know what I didn't do? I wondered all kinds of, what's wrong, God, what's going on? You know what I didn't do? Lord, you know, I, I did ag- Lord, what's going on between me and you? I feel bad, this is weird, this is freaking me out, you're my dad, you're always there. You know what I didn't do? I didn't say, how am I treating my wife? How is it between me and Jane? It should have been the first place I looked. I never for a moment made a concrete connection mentally between the sense of distance between me and God and any problems with how I was treating my bride. But Peter is telling us here, just like Malachi was trying to tell Judah, that the God of faithfulness is a faithful witness between every husband and the wife that he vowed to love and serve. And when we're unfaithful to our wives, with our hearts, when we don't honor them but dishonor them, when with our harshness or with eyes of lust, we dismiss them And despise them he takes action and he shuts the door and he closes his ears until we come clean with our confession now he's patient and he's merciful he's not flying off the handle he is slow to anger he gives us a lot of time he gives us a lot of second chances but there comes a time when he says, son, I'm done, talk- I'm done talking to you until, until you take this seriously, until you take this woman seriously. We're, we're finished for now. And woe, woe to the man who doesn't feel that pain. Woe to the man who can't weep and groan because he can't tell that God's withdrawn from him. Woe to the man whose heart is so hard and whose numbness is so thick that it doesn't make that much of a difference to him. And he just keeps going. I'm afraid that those men who think today that they're free and they found a new life and then in their numbness they feel a new lease on life that there's a day coming where the numbness will be gone. The blinders will be off. And all they will have for eternity is a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because John, 1 John 3, 19 tells us whoever belongs to him cannot continue practicing sin because God's spirit is in him. And so what do we say about the man who just keeps going away farther and farther and farther, number and number, harder and harder? We might say that man is dead even as he lives. So men, do you want to cultivate and protect your relationship with God? your sense of his nearness? Do you want to sense more of his presence and the readiness of his heart to answer your heart? You can perhaps do nothing more important than to treat your wife or your fiance, if you have one, and really by extension and principle, any sister in Christ in your life, though this is specific to husbands and I would say to fiances. You can perhaps do nothing better than to treat her with honor and grace as a co heir of the grace of life. And to my sisters in Christ who have been hurt deeply by us men who've made vows to you, I think about the number of women in our church whose husbands just kept going and going and going. Please take heart. He was there. He remembers your vows. Even if that man who used to be your husband doesn't. And your husband, Redeemer, is full of compassion for you. He is deeply affected by the unfaithfulness of your husband or your former husband, perhaps now long gone from your life. And in his jealousy for his faithful name, because he is a faithful husband, he will not turn a blind eye to you. But in compassion, he takes up your cause. And he will make the violence done to you bow its neck in submission to your eternal good. He will make the violence done to you bow its neck in submission to your eternal good. That's what he does with the things he hates. He makes them serve the people he loves. We may not see it all right now, but who hopes for what he sees? Finally, a word to single men and women. I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you this morning, like I did last week, to not run after a potential mate who rejects Yahweh, who rejects Jesus Christ, as that kind of spiritual adultery to your maker. But I want to plead with you something else. By the way, not because God doesn't love those people, but because evangelism and dating are not the same thing, and evangelism and marriage are not the same thing. But I want to plead with you today, Differently. Today, I want to plead with you to focus on becoming a faithful person before the Lord more than being focused on finding the perfect mate for your heart. I want to plead with you to focus on becoming a faithful person to your Lord, to your husband redeemer now, than finding the perfect mate for your heart. I don't mean that I don't want you dating right now, like some kind of weirdo, creepy, controlling pastor. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I think in the pursuit of marriage, often too much of our energy is focused on finding mates who press our soulmate button and make us feel all the feels and connect with us and fit our list, which I'm not saying isn't good, but I'm saying we can focus so much on that, we focus less on what matters to God most of all, which is our faithfulness. I'm not saying just go after any God-fearing believer Don't worry about chemistry. Don't worry about attraction. Just try to be faithful. I'm not saying that. I'm saying those things are good gifts, but major where God majors. You're really focused on finding the right one. I was too. But please find me God's heart in his word. Find it. For me in his word, where he says that you finding that one and only soulmate spouse that he's picked out on that special day for you for all eternity is more important than you cultivating a faithful, loving heart towards someone who will need someday to be faithfully honored. Do I think God has one person for you if he's ordained marriage for you? Sure. He knows exactly who they are every day ordained for you was written in his book before it came to be in fact he chose exactly what you were going to eat for breakfast yesterday he chose exactly what car route you took to get to church this morning but you just found that out through the unique taste buds he designed in you and the wisdom he gave to you and your maturity about eating and (laughs) driving and what roads to take my point is, is, is simply this, when we stand before God, the Lord is not going to say to Jacob Bickley, he's not gonna say to Jacob, Jacob, you married godly Erica? You should have married godly Kathleen! Didn't you feel those special Holy Spirit feels I gave you when you saw Kathleen? You married this godly girl Erica? Ah! No. No, he's not going to say that to you. He's going to say, Jacob, were you faithful to my girl? I mean, yeah, you, you married Erica instead of Kathleen. What I want to know is not why did you marry Erica instead of Kathleen. I want to know, were you faithful to my daughter? How did you treat my girl, Jacob? That's what the whole Bible is about, folks we can get sidetracked by these special secret super things and I'm not saying there's nothing to these things. Major on the majors. And our marriages will be better. We won't look back and say, I gotta go through the Rolodex of that day I made that decision. Did I blah, 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 blah. No, we can just be, have I sought to be faithful? And even if they haven't, then Lord between me and you, it's good, it's good, it's good. Sorry I yelled a little bit. I just, (laughs) it's so hard where you are. I know it's so hard. And all the feels are great. And all the gitchy gummies of chemistry and attraction, they're all, it's beautiful. God gives us all those things. But please focus on faithfulness above all things. Focus on trying to be the right person more than finding the right person. Focus on using this time to cultivate not only who that person might be, which is, you know, god it's fine to godly means to try to find a mate are fine but but more focus on jesus and 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 being faithful to him and learning to be faithful from his faithfulness to you and you will be in such a great place to love someone in a way that will please him and bless them so lastly as we go to the lord's table let's let's all of us remember let's all of us remember That God hates unfaithfulness in all of us. Women, he hates unfaithfulness in you too. We've spent a lot of time focused on men because Malachi did. And we preached the Bible today. And Malachi too. But God hates unfaithfulness in all of us. But that unfaithfulness that he hates, that you have committed, he took it from you and he wore it like a garment. And when he hung naked on that cross, spiritually he wasn't naked. He was wearing your unfaithfulness as his garment. He was wearing your pornography. He was wearing my lust. He was wearing the way I've exploited old girlfriends and my harsh words to my wife. He was wearing when you told that friend you'd show up and you didn't. And you made that commitment to that thing, but you bailed. And you said that stuff, but it really wasn't true. He was wearing all that. He's wearing what you'll do tomorrow and next week and next year. All the unfaithfulness. And he was killed for it. And on that cross, he put it to death. So even now, this morning, before communion, I want to appeal to you. Acknowledge that. Affirm it. Take heart. If you've got things to confess to him now, confess them now before you take communion. Bring them to him. As sincerely as you can, just say, Lord, I I accept this sacrifice on my behalf. So, we confess it and we fight it, but let us not say that any of our unfaithfulness in sin, please listen to me, let us not say that any of our unfaithfulness in sin is greater than his faithfulness and forgiveness is greater than his faithful blood bought freedom from its dominion. Let's take the bread and the cup. And I like to carefully get them both ready because it's kind of awkward. So... I could just recommend to you guys to get the bread out and then pull off the cap to the wine or the juice. I'd like to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, what a beautiful thing marriage is. Even if we can only idealize it from what's in our heart instead of what we've experienced. We know deep inside. Every man and woman on this earth who can think knows that romance and sexuality and marriage is supposed to be beautiful is supposed to be a gift. And Lord, we get to know the whole story. That you use sex and marriage to say to us, you're my bride. I am passionate about you. I deeply desire you. I long to be one with you. you have made yourself one with us for you are our husband we are your bride you are our husband you have sacrificed for us and you still do you nourish and cherish us you provide for us you protect us You don't use your leadership to exploit us, you use it to care for us, and carry us, and lay yourself down for us. And you are ever faithful to us. We don't deserve this kind of love, but we gladly and gratefully receive it. Please refresh us with a sense of the deepness of your forgiveness for our unfaithfulness please refresh us with a sense of the depth of your presence in us and the power in us to make us more faithful because we want to be more faithful husband redeemer we want to be a faithful bride because you are the perfect husband and we ask this of your father in your name